Tonight, Chris Christie is attacking Donald Trump every chance he gets in the Republican race for the White House. But is that a winning strategy for New Jersey's former governor and today's GOP? Then, Senator Cory Booker's bipartisan push to fix the criminal justice system and rebuild American cities post-pandemic. Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. A number of Republicans have already announced their plans to run for president in 2024 but almost all of them have been reluctant to consistently attack the front-runner in the race, former President Donald Trump. But there is one candidate who seems eager to go on the offensive against Trump, and that is former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who has publicly stated that he is running not only to win, but also to ensure that Donald Trump loses. Christie, who has gone from one of Trump's earliest mainstream supporters to one of his harshest critics, recently described the former president as a loser and has publicly questioned Trump's fitness for elected office. What explains Governor Christie's changed attitude toward Donald Trump? And during this presidential campaign, will he be more than just a guided missile rhetorically aimed at Donald Trump, as David French of the New York Times has put it? Could he actually win? Joining us now to answer these and other questions is Metro Focus contributor and anchor of State of Affairs on WNET and NJPBS, the one, the only, Steve Adubato. Steve, welcome back to the show. But what do I do after that introduction, Raf? Good to uh, see you, yeah, my just friend. Be, just be fabulous, I guess. <laughs> Should be easy. Thanks for putting pressure on me. Let, let's talk <laughs> Christie. All right. You know, I, I don't know anyone who has interviewed Chris Christie more often than you have. The most recent interview was in April. So as far as you can tell, why is he running for president again? Does he really think that he has a shot at the nomination this time? Every time I think, Raph, that I know Chris Christie, I realize that I don't. Uh, and reading his mind is uh, is virtually impossible. But my gut tells me that Chris Christie believes that if he can get on a debate stage head to head, yeah, there'll be other candidates, but if he has a chance to engage Donald Trump, he can take him on, he can embarrass him, he can gain in the polls where, right as we do this taping, he's at one, two, three, four, five percent at tops. He believes he can turn this entire Republican presidential primary upside down. That's what he believes. He has that much confidence in himself. Well, he didn't do any of that in 2016, and he was in a debate stage with Trump. But but how do you respond to those who argue or who say that this is all a grudge match? He always almost said it. He wants he wants one of the things that he wants most of all is to have Trump lose. Uh, that it's a grudge and it's payback. 
for his not having been named vice president by Trump or or attorney general back in 2016. Even some say because he blames Trump from giving him the case of COVID that almost killed him. Uh, uh, what do you say to all that? Do I think it's personal? Yes, I do. Do I think there's a grudge? Yes, I do. But it's also Chris Christie's way of saying, um, and you're absolutely right, Raph, to go back for a second, Christie was on the stage in 2016 with Trump, but in his mind and in the mind of all those other candidates, they didn't want to take Trump on directly. And the only one who I believe, and you, you've interviewed Christie as much as I have, frankly, you know that Chris Christie could have <laughs> if he chose to, but he did not take on Trump. He knows it was a mistake. They didn't take him seriously until it was too late. Now, going back to the grudge, it is personal, in my view. It is very real. There's a lot of, there's a vendetta here. But I also believe, again, I'll repeat myself, Chris Christie thinks he can take Donald Trump down. And that is his goal, even if he is not ultimately, Christie, the Republican nominee. He wants to take Trump down. Well, as I said, you know, he has been the harshest candidate so far towards, towards Trump by far. Why does he think that's a winning strategy in a Republican Party whose base is arguably now basically uh, uh, made up of Trump supporters, MAGA supporters? You know, I, I got to tell you, Ref, how many more in, indictments need to come down on Donald Trump? How much more evidence? How many more facts? How much more has to happen for Donald Trump to lose his base? I don't see it, Raf. I really right. don't. Right. Um, you and I are, are not big on political prognostication. We try to talk about policy and issues. But when it comes to politics and a constituency, Trump is not losing that 30, 35 percent. He's not losing it. Mm -hmm. You have multiple candidates in the field, including Chris Christie. I don't see Trump's base of support falling apart. And I think if Christie believes that that's going to happen. I think he's mistaken. Yeah. And then on the other hand, although now he is as harsh as critics, as we know, as we've kind of touched on, he was a big supporter. The fate, the first mainstream supporter, you know, much of the consternation of some of Fritzy's supporters back in 2016. Um, are the are the powerful Republicans never Trumpers going to forget and forgive that? I think Christie made a mistake. I really do. I think. He made a calculated mistake. Look, I could go back to 2012 and say that was his best time to run. But when Chris Christie says it wasn't right for him, he wasn't ready to be president. Ralph, frankly, I defer to him. Only he knows himself. Only he knows his family situation. That was his best time politically, but it didn't work for him to run against Barack Obama. By 2016, things had happened. Yeah. Bridgegate had happened. Yeah. The photo on the beach yeah. with the beach closed happened. The hug, which... Christie argues was never really a hug with Barack Obama during Hurricane Sandy getting federal help. It happened, whether people think it happened or not, in the minds of many, it did. Republicans, so-called MAGA Republicans, will never, in my view, ever forgive Chris Christie for what they perceive he did wrong. I personally think there was a lot of leadership involved during Sandy, but that's not the way MAGA Republicans see it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Governor Christie um, likes to tout the fact that he was a Republican governor in a deeply um, blue state who managed to get a lot done in a bipartisan um, way. Is that an accurate assessment of his time as governor? I say yes. Ref, you and I were anchoring uh, our program um, 
Capital Report looking at state public policy issues. And we would analyze how Christie, together with the Senate president at the time, Steve Sweeney, a Democrat, right, a conservative, moderate Democrat, they worked together on pension reform. They worked together on a whole range of issues on fiscal conservatism, if you will. They worked together on so many things. But here's the problem, Raf. Working together with Democrats, compromising, getting things done does not seem to appeal to the Republican constituency that is going to dictate who the Republican nominee is. They're not into compromise. They are not into working with Democrats. They are into, quote, get the libs. Mm. That's not what Chris Christie is all about. And so it may not work out what he thinks he's able to do with this constituency. Timing's off. Constituency's off. Um, It's a different Republican Party. All right. So besides touting his ability to uh, to be a bipartisan, to, to reach across the aisle, which, as you say, may or may not be a good thing in the primary, probably not. You probably it's right. a good thing for government. Right? Yeah. It's a good yeah. thing for government getting course, things done. But for him and for, for the nominee, for getting, winning the nomination. And aside from going after Trump, is uh, is there one issue? Or is there a, a cluster of issues that he's campaigning for or on? You know, it's very simple. You said it in the introduction, Raf. Chris Christie's main argument beyond the issue of integrity uh, or lack thereof that is perceived by many regarding Donald Trump, beyond all the criminal charges, civil charges, the charges that may come in the future, Chris Christie's main argument, Raf, is Donald Trump is a loser. He lost one election after another. Do you want, this is Christie's argument, do you want to lose again? It's technically correct. But if that MAGA base, I'm, I'm a broken record now, Raf, if that 30, 35 percent believes whether he wins or loses, they're going to stay with Trump. It doesn't matter what Christie says, but he's technically correct that Donald Trump has been a loser starting before 2020 in the midterm elections, a big time loser for the Republican Party. Now, you know, it's difficult to talk about Christie's current presidential campaign without bringing up Bridgegate, which you already have. And, and that was the thing. I think you'll agree that probably torpedoes his 2016 campaign long before it started. Um, could Agreed. you summarize what what Bridgegate entailed uh, for us and tell us uh, if you think it's likely to impact his campaign this time? There's Bridgegate and then there's Chris Christie's um, the way he frames Bridgegate. And I don't really know what ultimately happened. To be clear, Chris Christie was never charged in the Bridgegate case, but there were people close to him, his closest, some of his closest aides. He says they were not very close aides. They were the the first indicted and the two people convicted. All three of them said that he was he was in on it from the beginning. But of course, he's always said he's innocent and he wasn't charged with anything, as you'd say. And Chris Christie says his greatest crime, and I don't mean a criminal criminal crime, his greatest mistake was, quote, trusting people that were in his orbit, if you will, his staff. The argument is simply this, or the case is this, that the George Washington Bridge was closed down for several hours, as you and and the world know, uh, Raf, it was closed down because the mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey, whose name is not even relevant right now, did not support Chris Christie. And because Fort Lee is right by the bridge as political retribution they were going to close down the bridge and pay him back for not supporting Christie. And it caused havoc. It caused a horrible traffic jam. It caused way worse than that. And there was a a case involved. Criminal charges were brought. And it was a terrible embarrassment 
Bridgegate was a black mark on the Christie administration, even though Christie says it wasn't him and he didn't know those involved in the case and were ultimately convicted said he did. It doesn't look good. Never look good and never will. Yeah. And it's it's not going to go away, right? No, because a lot of things people forget in politics, Raf. That's not something you forget anytime yeah. soon. Yeah, something else you don't forget, which you've already brought up, and much less important, of course, than Bridgegate, was Beachgate. And, of course, that's when <laughs> it, the the 4th of July weekend in 2017, actually, where yeah. he was photographed lounging, uh, you know, catching some rays on the beach, on a public beach, when he had closed all the public beaches for all other New Jerseyans because of, uh, because of a budget dispute with the legislature. And when he was confronted with that, when he was asked, you know, what do you say to other New Jerseyans who would have liked to have been in the beach? He said, um, well, you know, they should run for governor. You know, that's pretty funny. But, you know, we've known Christie for a long time. In fact, we were the first to interview him on TV. And we were. Sure were. We, 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 I remember that after the As first U.S. Interview. attorney, right, Raph? Right. Yeah. And we said, this guy's got political skills. That Christie would not have done something like this. What happened? You know, Raph, um, to his credit and too late, in my view, he acknowledged that it was a mistake to be on that beach, not just to be photographed on the beach, but to be on that beach at that time when other New Jerseyans could not enjoy the beach. Mm -hmm. But at the time, Raph, as you very accurately described, he pushed back. Well, basically said, if you were the governor, you could do it, too. That's a let them eat cake mentality. Yeah, yeah. And that does not, again, you know, I'm a student of leadership, yeah. mostly because I make a lot of mistakes as a that leader. That sticks with people. That sticks with people. But I wish Christy had just said, I screwed up. I was wrong. Yeah. I shouldn't have been on the beach. Forget about the fact that yeah. the photo was taken. I shouldn't have been on the beach. It was wrong. And I think he could have turned it around. But he didn't do that. And that only added to the Bridgegate situation. Not a good look. All right. We only have 15 seconds left. What will be his biggest contribution in this campaign, win or lose? I think he's going to take a few big chunks out of Donald Trump. I don't know if Trump ever gets on that debate stage with him, but if he does, I bet on Christie nicking him up pretty bad, and we'll see what happens after that. But he is not, he's going to go down fighting. I know Chris Christie that way. All right. Okay. We're going to have to end it there, Steve. Thanks so much for joining us as always. It's been a pleasure and a lot of fun. My honor as always, Ref. Since the onset of the 2020 pandemic, American cities have faced particular challenges, the likes of which they had never seen before. Rebuilding a devastated economy, providing adequate health care and education for their residents, fixing a broken criminal justice system, and dealing with the ever-growing threat of climate change have all come to the forefront over the past few years as some of the most critical issues affecting our cities and the people who live in them. In order to address these issues, the WNET Group recently participated in a live stream journalism series called American Cities Rebuilding for the third consecutive year. The series, made in partnership with PBS stations across the country and sponsors Wells Fargo and PSENG, brings together the top minds of today for conversations on the unique problems cities are facing and what they can do to bounce back, hopefully better than ever. I had a chance to speak with New Jersey Senator Cory Booker as part of American Cities Rebuilding about how criminal justice reform is an essential step in helping cities rebuild in a post-pandemic reality. Take a look. We want to welcome to this session New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, who is going to join us as we continue our American Cities Rebuilding conversation. And Senator, welcome. It's always good to see you. It's great to see you, Jack. Thank you so much. 
I want to talk about police reform and where we are now. And I want to start with a bigger picture question, if I could. And, and that is, why personally you are so deeply invested in the idea that police reform is so essential to help with American cities and communities in their rebuilding and moving forward? Well, I live in Newark, New Jersey and have for the last quarter century. When I moved there, we had a, a really serious crime problem. And eventually I became mayor and was tasked with uh, driving down crime. It was the number one issue for voters in my city. And we began to make tremendous headway, but we soon found out that there was this long legacy in Newark of erosions of trust between police and communities that ultimately really undermined uh, the, the progress we were making. And, and we had to do a lot. The DOJ came in and others, and they showed me that when you scraped the data and actually created more transparency and accountability, you saw what the police were doing that in many ways were disproportionately impacting uh, African-American and Latino communities and violating uh, civil rights. And so we began a much more expansive view of public safety and uh, a lot of our police leadership leaned in understanding that that kind of transparency and accountability would make the profession better, stronger, but ultimately help us to better achieve what everybody wanted, which was a safe, strong city. This movement has been subject, as with so many, to fits and starts and, and making some progress, stepping back, trying to reach out. Um, certainly after the death of George Floyd, there seemed to be some more momentum here. Let's talk about the federal level first. Where are we in terms of progress coming at the federal level for police reform? Well, we've got to expand the view of what we think of as police reform into a much bigger conversation about overall criminal justice reform. We know that at every point within the justice system, we still have disparities, uh, whether it's who's more likely to get pulled over by police officers, who's more likely to get uh, station house adjustments, higher charges, longer sentences, and, and the like. And you just see a lot of disparities in our system that are very problematic. Now, there have been very encouraging moves on both sides of the aisle. In fact, I'm just coming out of a staff meeting where we were talking about strong alliances with conservative groups for more reforms that we're pushing, that everybody understands that, you know, these fundamental ideals in our country of liberty and justice really come to the point of policing in our court system. And so I'm, I'm, I've had nine years in the Senate now almost exactly, and have been very encouraged by how in a bipartisan way, we've been able to pass some significant legislation and I'm continue to be in talks with uh, the, uh, with not just police reform, but overall system reform that will help to restore people's faith in the justice system, help people um, uh, believe that we together as a society can make our community safer. And what is wonderful about this is that through this all, I've deepened my relationship with law enforcement groups. Uh, in fact, my the largest police union that represents the majority of the police officers the FOP has been a tremendous partner in everything from making sure that we have more transparency in policing uh, to helping with the mental health challenges we have with police, as well as um, in trying to drive ideas that we are going to, I think, see more of in society that, that don't put all the burden for safety on police. Like police officers know 
when there's more drug treatment, when there's more mental health professionals involved in helping people uh, who are in crisis, the less police have to get involved, the less things will go bad, and the more we create a deeper understanding of what public safety is. As my police director said to me in, when I was mayor of the city of Newark, you know, true public safety is not having a police state. True public safety is empowering communities so that we're not responding to crime, but creating environments where that crime doesn't happen in the first place. And to have a coalition of people across the political spectrum, and especially from law enforcement, that have a more expansive view of public safety, it's really going to help us to make a lot of, a lot of progress. So, Senator, let me ask you this, and you talked about the conversations you've had with with other groups and organizations involved, especially police organizations involved here and the public. Have you found that that using the right words to communicate what this idea actually means has been helpful in moving forward? Absolutely. At the end of the day, we all want to be understood. And I think what advantaged me in a lot of my discussions with law enforcement is they understood that I was a guy that was a mayor of a city with a lot of violent crime and that I worked closely with police officers, rode in their cars for countless hours, witnessed the incredible courage of officers, know how dangerous their job is. And starting with that basis of empathy and understanding really created a great foundation where where my uh, colleagues in the negotiations did not feel they were under attack, felt understood, and had a common set of values um, about this nation needing to do a lot more to really help and support our police departments. That doesn't negate um, the challenging issues of understanding the history of policing in this country, uh, the challenges that many uh, have faced uh, in terms of uh, racial disparities and more. So, I, I, again, it's just indicative of the larger climate in our country. Are we speaking at each other or are we speaking with each other? Are we seeking to score political advantage or come to common ground and uh, common understanding? Uh, we have so much we agree on in this nation in terms of our common values and common ambitions. Uh, but our, our dialogue has been suffering I think a lot from a culture of contempt where we are not seeking to understand each other, to lead with empathy, uh, but instead just to try to uh, score political points. And so I'm hopeful that this conversation will grow, become more nuanced, and that can use the wisdom of many different uh, stakeholders to come to a conclusion where we have a safer, fairer, more just system of policing in America. Quick question for you. On the heels of the midterms, as far as we know at this juncture, what, what all the results are, uh, do you have any cause for optimism that this might help, these results might help to move things forward at all? Um, you know, I'm a prisoner of hope always. And I think we are dealing with a time in our nation where um, a lot of the extremes uh, voices in this country um, are being rejected by voters. And this is not, I don't say that in a partisan way. Because uh, clearly now we are likely to have a Congress that has a House controlled by Republicans, a Senate controlled by Democrats. But I just really hope um, that we are learning lessons in our political sphere, that this culture of contempt that we're seeing in our politics, uh, this zero-sum game that we're seeing in our politics, this uh, um, sense of might makes right or uh, a lot of our democratic norms being eroded, that at the end of the day, we're a nation that the greatest calling 
seen in everything from our ideal of e pluribus unum to even our pledge that calls upon us to put more indivisible into this one nation under God. I'm hoping that this is a season where the pendulum having gone so far one way that, that we can start pulling the pendulum in our country where we can deal with difficult issues from policing to immigration and see the truth. The truth there is that there is a lot of common ground and a lot of work we can do together to make us safer and stronger and more prosperous as a nation. Last question for you. Shifting topics a little bit, you're a member of the Senate Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry. And we've seen recently that the U.S. Department of Agriculture has gotten involved in dispersing funds that were allocated through the Inflation Reduction Act to help with, with, with farmers and the economic distress that they are finding themselves in. Give us a sense of what's being done and how it can help people. Yeah, we have a food system that is so integrated. We are all part of the same food system. And so injustices in any part, whether it's for farm workers, for farmers, for end consumers, it's all interrelated. And we have a farm system right now where we tell people what is a healthy diet, but only 2% of our ag subsidies go to the things that we tell Americans to eat the majority of, fruits and vegetables. And because of so much of the concentration, farmers are being squeezed economically with their share of the consumer dollar going down dramatically as these large chemical companies or large consolidated corporations are, are sort of putting tremendous economic pressure on family farmers who've had their farms for generations but now are suddenly losing them. And so there are a lot of obvious things we could be doing to fix our food system that would help the health of Americans, who right now most Americans don't realize we have a government where one out of three, almost one out of three of every dollar we spend in governments for health care, because we have this explosion of diet-related diseases with about half of our population now uh, diabetic or pre-diabetic. And then all the way to, again, the struggling farmers. And there's things that we could be doing to align our subsidies with the health and well-being of families, to align incentives uh, um, with the kind of uh, uh, agricultural uh, practices that empower our environment. And then finally, to start enforcing the antitrust laws, uh, Occyard Act, uh, that were used generations ago to stop the kind of ag sector co uh, consolidation that our ancestors from FDR and Truman and Eisenhower saw as such a threat to the health and well-being of American farmers. And so I'm, I'm one of these folks that moved to the Agricultural Committee as a New Jersey senator because I know we could do these things better where everybody in our country would not only do better, but we could create a, a level of thriving health economically and environmentally uh, that is really uh, worthy of, of, of our great nation. Well, Senator Cory Booker, we always appreciate you taking some time to share your thoughts and updates with us. Thank you uh, once again, and, and you take care. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at metrofocus.org, wliw.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.